Let me just open up in a word of prayer. Father God, we come to you this morning uh, to look into your word. And as we do, Lord, I just pray that we will come, excuse me, with a great humility as we consider our own brokenness. And at the same time, Lord, we come in that humility, but with a profound certainty. A certainty in what your word says, and a certainty in who we are to be as disciples of Jesus. So, Father, I would just ask that you would give us this morning both that humility and that certainty. In Christ's name, amen. So, this morning, it is my sincere hope that I, in this sermon, will answer some questions that we may have about this issue of sexual identity and the church and in culture today and what the scripture says about that. But you'll also have to understand that I will probably raise as many questions as I answer. And so what I would like you to do is if you have a pen or just a good memory, to think of the questions as they come. And after our last song, I will stay up here for 30 minutes or three hours or however long it takes. And I will answer as many questions as I can if you have any questions, okay? So at the end of the service, last song, people can go get their kids and stuff like that, but you can stay and I will answer questions at the end because that's just, it's a big topic and we only have one sermon for it. So keep that in mind. Now this, this issue of homosexuality as a broad term, as Al Mohler has said, has basically become the litmus test of the church in our engagement with the culture. Um, it is the way that people are testing us today, if not for them personally, but because they, in general, just can't understand how the church can hold up a view that is so different from what the dominant culture says must be conformed to. And that because our stance goes against what the dominant culture says must be conformed to, our stance must therefore be wrong. And so it's a litmus test. It's a test of the church in our culture today. Maybe it wasn't a test 20 years ago or 30 years ago, but today it is the primary test of what the church believes. And Christian teaching on homosexuality, we also have to acknowledge, is not a hidden form of homophobia. But we do have to admit that in the past, it was partly that. That the church in past decades and past years, too much reflected the culture of those past decades, and they joined in the culture that you might remember from your childhood days on the schoolyard of fear and ridicule, excuse me, ridicule, and, uh, and just being stupid about this topic. And the church kind of joined culture in that, and, and we, were, we were stupid about this topic as a church. And so we need to acknowledge that Cultural Christianity has acted pretty poorly on this in the past. But it's not out of fear that sincere, thoughtful Christians are having this conversation today. And this issue of homosexuality and, and gender issues has been a top-down issue in our culture. The success of the gay lobby groups has taken this from the top courts, from the top level of government, from the top of the education system, from the top levels of media and culture, and they've laid it down across all of the Western world. We have been told that this is now the norm by every authority. And so the public discussion is over. 
even though privately, not everyone is so sure they agree with us with it. It's just bad form. It's political suicide to engage in any kind of conversation that would go against the dominant culture and the cultural norm. Just ask, uh, was it Phil from Duck Dynasty? He tried to speak on this issue and just about lost his show, uh, but got it back. Um, and as I go into this, so, so that's sort of a context of where we are in this issue of homosexuality and, and sexual identity uh, in society. And as we look at it in the church, I'm just going to go into a few definitions uh, just to hit some ideas or some, some terminology. Because as you can imagine in this conversation, our language has to be fairly precise. Uh, we have to be pretty accurate about what we're talking about. And so... As we talk about the issues of gender and sexuality and gender identity, we're confronted with a lot of words and a lot of letters and a lot of acronyms and concepts. And, and so a few uh, quick uh, sort of definitions. When I say homosexual, we're referring to a person whose sense of identity is based on those attractions related and related behaviors and membership in a community of others who share those attractions. And so you look at the homosexual community, they feel a certain attraction and they are related with people who have those attractions and behaviors, about 2 to 3% of the population, and it's been steady over time. LGBT, lesbian, gay, bi, transvestite, and sometimes Q for queer, Q for questioning, P for pansexual, P for polyamorous, all kinds of acronyms. Uh, I'm with Bruxy Cavey on this issue. Whenever I say LGBT, I can't help but thinking of BLT, because I'm just a guy, and my thoughts just immediately go to my stomach. And I don't mean that, you know, obviously there's, there's bad jokes, and I think that's a good one because it has bacon in it. Um, but the LGBT community is out there, and the LBG community is basically, again, just a, a broad term. And then gay, it's a term that's now being recaptured as a positive way of referring to all these various forms of sexual and gender expression, and so we can talk about the gay community, and that's okay again, I think. Um, and then... Uh, SSA, I'll refer to SSA, which is same-sex attraction. And that's a term that's used to refer to the feelings of attraction a person might have, but explicitly separate from acting on those feelings or a self-identification with homosexuality or that community of homosexuality. And so it's same-sex attraction. And then medically, you have hermaphrodites and pseudohermaphrodites, which are various combinations of physical expression of gender combined with chromosome expression of gender. And uh, it's roughly a half of a tenth of a percent of the population that are in that category. Um, and there's then congenital issues in terms of hormones that uh, affect us during pregnancy when we're in the womb and genetic development and things like that. All of these definitions, though I don't say necessarily just to give you a lexicon, but to point towards a few truths. The fact that all of this language and all of this dictionary has grown up around this shows us a couple of things. This is not a simple topic to navigate. Okay, there is no one blanket answer to every question and every person and every circumstance and every attraction and every feeling and every desire. Every person is a person and it's very complex. And we have to embrace the complexity of the human condition. We were all fearfully and wonderfully made by God and in the image of God. But as we're knit together in the room, there are awesome things going on that enforces at work that just make our journeys through our each everybody's journey unique in their life. And so we just have to respect that complexity. Secondly, labels are useful 
and they're required for communication. So we can say LGBT or we can say gay, whatever. We start to label people, but labels aren't people. And so we can talk about labels, but don't let labels become people's identity. There's a person behind the label. Just like we didn't like being the fat kid in school, or we didn't like being the nerd, or we didn't like being the jock. There's labels, and then when you get older, the labels don't go away when you're an adult. They just get more subtle. <laughs> but you're still labeled. And we don't like being labels, do we? Labels are not people. We have to deal with this issue not with labels, but addressing people. Thirdly, that there are biological forces at work in the selection of gender, physically and mentally. No one has any definitive answer as to the causes for same-sex attraction, but everybody agrees that multiple causes interact together in very complex ways. Okay, so there's recent studies have shown, uh, and it's a study published in the Archive of Sexual Behavior, that family culture, environmental factors contribute to same-sex attraction, broken families, absent fathers, older mothers, being born and living in an urban setting are associated with homosexual experience or attraction, and even the most sort of repulsive or unheard of casual contributor childhood sexual abuse has received significant validation as a partial contributor, but also chromosomes, also, hormone levels, congenital issues, all of these things are potential contributors to the feelings of same-sex attraction in people, to people having that burden maybe for their whole life, to feel that way. And so these are, none of these causes that I just mentioned, these biological and environmental causes, are demonstrated to be determinative. None of them guarantee any outcome at all. There are People who go through all of those different things and don't feel same-sex attraction. For instance, in 71 pairs of separate identical twins, where one twin was shown to be gay of the 71, 71 gay twins, only seven of their identical twins were found to also be gay. So genetics does play a part, but genetics is not fully determinative. Okay, so I just say all that to say this is complex, to say that as society and as a church, we've been ignorant about the science, we've been ignorant about the causes, we've been ignorant about uh, how people feel and how they are. And regardless of these causes, what we need to make clear, what is common among all studies, longitudinal, latitudinal, any kind of study across all forms of gender identity, that there's no sense of choosing to be gay or choosing to experience those attractions. And so we need to set that idea aside. Now back to our question, how does the church then respond to the demand to affirm sexual activity and sexual self-identity, especially, especially homosexuality in our culture? That's essentially the question. I got two or three on this one, and one just said homosexuality, so I didn't know what they wanted me to talk about. Um, and the other one asked, how do I respond to the issue of homosexuality in people in my life. And so I've taken this and made the question, how does the church respond to the demand to affirm sexual activity, all sorts of variant sexual activity, and sexual self-identity, especially homosexuality in our culture? And I want to unpack the answer in four parts. To show, first of all, that we're all in the same boat. Secondly, to see that God offers us all the same hope. Thirdly, to look at what our Christian response is to that hope, and finally then, what it means to be the church in light of that hope. 
So first of all, we're all in the same boat. Bear with me. I'm going to speed up just a little bit. In Romans 1, 21 to 25, as our core text, we see that we are all in the same boat. We all sin. We're all crooked. It says in Romans 1, 21 to 25, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is the Apostle Paul talking about humanity, us, mankind. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And last week we talked about how the human race has made up its mind to ignore the evidence of God and the display of his person and his glory and instead to worship creation. That's what we talked about last week. Primarily they worship, we worship ourselves. And this is fundamentally sin. That is sin. Rejecting God and putting ourselves or something else in place of God. But Paul goes on and he illustrates some of the truth that results from this sin. And he chooses sexual immorality in this particular text as being one of the most glaring and most obvious and most distorted of the consequences of mankind putting God behind us. But it's not the primary or only consequence by any means. In this text, we have to understand that Paul is using this as an illustration. He's using it as an example of what happens when mankind rejects God. But it is not the only or even primary consequence. He goes on to say, Therefore God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served creatures rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so Paul begins by saying the first form, first about all forms of lust and impurity. He's not talking about homosexuality here. He says he gave them to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. All forms of sexual reordering and dishonoring, which would include heterosexual sin, like adultery and fornication and pornography. And notice the order. The sexual sins are not what caused the breaking of the relationship with God or the dishonoring of God. The sexual sins were the result of our rebelling from God. And then Paul goes on, moving on from general sexual sin. He speaks more specifically about homosexual sin. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves due penalty for their error. And then what we really need to see here is that Paul moves on from that text and from his sort of most dramatic illustration and his most dramatic example of the disordering of humanity having fallen away from God, what he feels to be the most obvious example, he goes on in verses 28 to 30 to include a broad spectrum of the type of other sinful activity that also resulted from our denial of God. In 28 to 31, he keeps going and he says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, again, they, the broader mankind culture, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. What do we take away from this? When you take the whole text of Romans chapter 1, everyone is on the list. Everyone is in the same boat. Paul is not speaking exclusively to homosexual sin. He's not even speaking exclusively to sexual sin. Paul is describing in the most dramatic and inclusive way possible the complete dismantling of the proper ordering of our lives into disorder. 
that our moral lives, as a result of our foolishness in rejecting God, our moral lives in every area of our life are disordered and broken and sinful. In fact, in the very next sentence, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because that you, the judge, practice the very same thing. We're all in the same boat on this issue. We cannot pick and choose who's in the boat and who is out of the boat. All of humanity is foolish in rejecting God. All of us are broken in our moral norms. All of us are deviant in the way we think about ourselves ahead of God and the way we seek selfishly to please ourselves in whatever means we desire, sexually or otherwise. So not only can we say that everyone has sinned and everyone sins, but I'll say that everyone even has sexual sin. Nobody has a sexual ethic or a sexual practice that's not wholly untouched by sin, whether it's heterosexual or otherwise. I mean, you ask the question, how many ways have humans disordered their sexual life? I would ask you, how many human beings are there? I mean, we have disordered our sexual life in every conceivable way. We use sex for power. We use sex to manipulate. We withhold sex, we idolize sex, we have sex with the wrong people at the wrong time of our lives, we use sex selfishly, we use sex carelessly, you name it, we have disordered our sexual lives from the very beginning. And all of us need redemption in that regard. Whether men, women, hermaphrodites, homosexuals, bisexuals, we're all in the same boat. Our sexual lives are disordered. Our souls are disordered by sin. And our biology is disordered by the effects of sin and the curse on the world. All of our sin is both environmental and genetic. We are sinful both by nature and by nurture in this fallen world. And so none of us can judge sexual sins of another with an easy or arrogant conscience. And everyone faces a lifelong battle with this. This is another thing on this topic to be clear about. That it is not uniquely a homosexual struggle for their life to deal with their attractions. There is not one Christian I know who doesn't testify that their battle against the various temptations in their life is a lifelong battle. Anybody here free from all temptation? It's always a lifelong battle with temptation, whatever form it takes. In Psalm 101, King David says, Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land. That's the Christian life. Every morning we wake up having to destroy what is wicked in our life. It's a battle. It's a war. But it's a victorious war because of God's answer to this problem. We are all in the same boat, but we all have the same hope. Christ died for everyone without exception. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But don't forget 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, excuse me, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came to save the world, everybody, without exclusion. And it's a gospel message that includes everybody. And this isn't specifically a gospel message I'm preaching today. 
but everything about God's relationship with us in this world and everything we deal with in our life eventually comes back to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross and what he accomplished for us. And we all have the same hope. We all have the same good news. The good news for the drunkard is the same as the good news for the addict of pornography, is the same as the good news for the homosexual, is the same as the good news for the transvestite. It's good news for everybody that he, God, sent Jesus and Jesus set aside his glory and he set aside all his godness in order to come into the world to live a perfect life and die a sacrificial death and be raised to reconcile us with God and begin the redemption of our life. And no matter how sinful our souls may be, no matter how disordered our biology is, no matter what impulses we have acted upon, no matter what we've done in the past, God is willing and waiting to restore us. And same-sex attraction is as redeemable as anything else. The best church members and the best church leaders that you have met, many of them will have been struggling with this sin. This is not a sin that, or a, a struggle that is reserved for particularly people who God loves particularly less. Okay, It doesn't mean that, that they don't love Jesus deeply because they suffer with those attractions or that they have those temptations. People with these temptations and with this issue can love Jesus deeply just as much as we, in our fallen nature, with our sins, can love Jesus deeply. It has nothing to do with their ability to love Jesus, that they struggle with this. If we can believe that there's greedy people and adulterers and addicts and, and thieves and drunks and liars and violent people who are able to love Jesus... There are transvestites and lesbians and gays and, and all other people who struggle with same-sex attraction who also love Jesus very much. And so we have to remember that, that they are fellow Jesus seekers with us. And just as we are on a journey of remodeling our lives and conforming to the image of Christ in spite of our desires and temptations, so can Jesus be at work through his Holy Spirit transforming the lives of gay people in spite of their desires and in spite of their temptations, just like it's in spite of our desires and in spite of our temptations. Jesus and the Holy Spirit is at work in them to redeem them and transform them more and more into his image. And what we take away from that, what I take away from that, in my own life, and my own desires, and my own passions, and my own temptations, is that we're not biological robots. That we can be set free by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 6, 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is the hope that we all share. We're all in the same boat, but we all have the same boat. All have the same hope. God is in the business of redemption. God is in the business of redeeming broken lives. He's in the business of redeeming a broken world. He is in the business of transforming people day by day more and more into the likeness of Christ. And that's, just, that's true for everyone who comes to follow Jesus. That there is a process of becoming more and more day, and day, day in and day out more transformed into the likeness of Christ. And that's true of people who struggle with same-sex attraction as well. And the thing that we need to remember as Christians, as a church reaching out to them, that that may not even be the biggest temptation in their life. That may not even be the biggest sin issue that they're struggling with. God could be working on something totally different in their life than that right now. God didn't deal with everything that I would had in my heart all at once. It's been an ongoing process, and he's got lots more to do. You know, I love John Piper. He says, John Piper's like 
66 or 67 now, I think, from mid-60s anyway. <laughs> and he said, I'm not sin-free yet, <laughs> and I don't really have expect to finish my life free of sin either. <laughs> and he loves righteousness. He says, I love holiness, but I love grace even more. And I take that to heart. Because you can start out, especially as a young Christian, and think, okay, God's going to clean all this up, and, you know, give me a few years, but eventually I'm going to be a pretty good person. And then you get to be 30, and then you get to be 40, and you get to be 50, and then you get to be 60, and you realize, wow, man, I love holiness, but I really got to love grace even more. Because it's a transformative process to be a disciple of Christ. And that's the hope that we have. That all of us as Christians are on a journey to be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. And that is discipleship. First of all, everybody needs to hear the gospel. And then everybody has an opportunity to believe the gospel. Again, it's open to everybody. And no matter what your temptations are, no matter what your sexual disordering is, no matter what your greed disordering is, no matter what your emotional disordering is, no matter what your relationship disordering is, all that sin... No matter what that sin is, the process of discipleship that we engage in after coming to put Jesus and God first, this process of discipleship is becoming more and more transformed into the person and likeness of Jesus Christ. That's discipleship. And it is hard, but it is possible. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he says, Paul says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. It is possible. Discipleship is hard, but it is possible. The gospel is good news, and we should not deny the power of the gospel to transform anyone. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And so when we address this issue, when we're dealing with friends and family members, and I get it, this is an issue that intersects everybody's life somewhere. When we're dealing with them, we cannot go into the situation cowardly or fearful in the sense that we deny the power of the gospel to transform lives. Because the power of the gospel is to transform lives. And so we can go into those situations, as I prayed at the beginning, with humility. Oh, deep humility, because we're all in the same boat. But at the same time, with profound confidence in what the Bible tells us and the experience of the gospel in our own lives, that the transformation is possible. That God has provided a way that is more powerful than our biology. It's more powerful than our own rebellion and our own fallen hearts. The gospel is more powerful than all of those things. And God is at work to transform us into the likeness of Christ. And so as Christians, no matter what sin we came from, we're now all on one common path, being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And it's worth noticing, for those that do have this issue, it's worth noticing that Jesus Christ, who is the most fully developed, most self-actualized, whole human being that ever lived, was single and celibate. Our sexuality does not define our identity. Christ defines our identity. 
To become Christ-like in one sense is to be set free from the long list of lies that we try to put on ourselves that are bound up primarily in our identity, that our identity is found in fame, that our identity is found in self-actualization, that our identity is found in our marriage, in our spouse, in our kids, that our identity is found in our, you know, being a player and having all these women that we've slept with, or our identity is found in uh, our emotional attachment to a man, that there are so many places we put our identity that is disordered. And coming to Christ and becoming Christ-like is first and foremost giving up our old self, giving up our old identity lies, and claiming identity in Christ. John 6.35 says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In other words, Jesus is the bread of love, life. He is what sustains and satisfies us. As long as we are finding satisfaction everywhere else, in other words, as long as our identity is anywhere else, as long as we are responding to, to seeking self-fulfillment anywhere else other than Jesus, responding to the pull of other desires and making other things ultimate other than Jesus, then Jesus has not fully become our bread. And the answer to this, the answer to our sin, the answer to the, all of our sexual sins is that we make Jesus the bread of life. We make him our ultimate desire. We make him our ultimate sustainer. Galatians 2, 19 and 20 says, For though the law, through the law I have died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's our identity in Christ that we must focus on. And it's putting forth the identity of Christ that is the answer to this disordering in our life. All of our sin. All of our sin is met with the same answer. Desire Christ more than desiring the things of this world. So in light of that hope, what does it mean to be the church? I'll finish rather briefly here. If it is, in other words, I've sort of set it up this way. If, if to be a Christian, if what it means is to be a Christian is to be involved in the transformation into Christ's likeness, and we accept that there are, Everybody is in that process of transformation into Christ-likeness, regardless of the disordering of their life, regardless of the sin that they struggle with and the temptations they have. If that's what it means to be Christian, then to be the church is to create a place where everyone can not just survive, but everyone can flourish in their pursuit of that new identity in Christ. Okay, that's one way of phrasing what the church can be. The church is a community of believers where everyone has opportunity to flourish in their pursuit of Christ-likeness and seek out the redemption of every area of their life. And so if this hope is real, and if this hope is powerful, and this hope is for everyone, then how do we hold it out to the world? How does the church hold that hope out there? Or to put it another way, if I was to ask this question as a leader who is charged to accomplish this answer to this question, which ironically I am, then this is how I would phrase it for myself. How do we at Lakeside create a culture of redemption that acts towards all of our sinful culture in a Christ-like manner for the purpose of their salvation and the redemption of their lives? Or more briefly, how do we best reflect Christ in this? And so I finish with a list here it's a list of affirmations and denials, and it's a good summary of what sort of church, if I could put my foot down and say, this is the church we will be, what sort of, what sort of church will we be, and what sort of church won't we be? We will not cling to the old culture of fear and rejection 
And if you're a person who is still in fear and rejection of homosexuals as people, you might have to repent of that. But we as a church will not cling to the old culture of fear and rejection. We will be loving and merciful and gracious to everyone who is seeking transformation into Christ-likeness. We will not be carried away by the new culture of affirmation either. We, were, we, we echoed the culture in the past, and now the church largely is echoing the culture in the future. The dominant culture says, hey, it's okay, sexual expression any way you want, it's fine. God loves it all. You can't just buy into the culture of affirmation either. And so as a church, we will not be carried away by the new culture of affirmation. We will speak truth and be guided by the authority of Scripture. We will not presume that a person's struggle with their sexual identity requires immediate confrontation upon the entrance through our front door or regular participation in worship. We'll start at the center with everyone. We will start at the center with the gospel and God's love for them and let the power of the gospel work outward through their lives. We will not presume that their same-sex attraction is the only or even the most important aspect of their spiritual growth. We will address the whole person and work within the leading of the Holy Spirit with them. We will not allow a culture of silence or special discrimination against this type of struggle. We will cultivate an ease and with cultivate an ease and a fearlessness in confession and conversation on this topic with people coming in, with our kids, with each other, so that the power of the gospel and the light of God's truth can take effect. We will not label and identify people by their struggles or presume that there is one easy answer. We will treat everyone as a unique person in the image of God and join them in their unique struggle. We will not place a greater burden on those with SSA by our words, our actions, or our inactions, or presume that their burden can be removed completely, but in every way attempt to bear their burden with them. We will not push sexual minorities out of the church and into the embrace of the world. Sexual minorities must find not only equal, but in a spiritual and biblical sense, greater support and greater love for them in the church than they can find in the world. The gay community should feel more love here than they feel at the bar. We have to change that. We will not elevate heterosexual identity through marriage as superior to identity in Christ through singleness. We will not love people who suffer from same-sex attraction less than we love our own children or ourselves. We will be a family who loves everyone just as we love ourselves and as we love our own. And personally, as a pastor, I will respond to everyone as an individual and not as a label. And everyone's journey is going to be different in this matter. May God hear our desires in this and guide us down the right paths in our engagement with this culture. Let's pray. Father God, you have laid before us an awesome responsibility. And I echo again and come again before you in humility and confidence. We do not want to echo the culture, either the old culture of denial and ridicule and fear or the new culture of affirmation. Because the church is a new nation, a new citizen, a new citizenship, a new culture. We have a biblical culture. And that's what we want to echo. That's what we want to represent. Father, help us to join everyone in their transformation into Christ-likeness. Help us to recognize your gospel is for everyone, that we are all in the same boat. We all need your grace. We all need your mercy. We're all disciples on a path. 
Help us to deal with our sons and our daughters and our co-workers and our brothers and our sisters and our aunts and our uncles. Help us to deal with everyone in this regard in a way that reflects your glory and your love and shows them your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.